Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. Before we get started this morning, I just want to say something about the, the beauty of both the Scriptures and the sovereignty of God. Um, we, we work through books of the Bible uh, here at St. Rose Community Church. It's just our, our weekly practice is the way that we, we work through teaching on Sunday mornings is not um, me coming up with what we should teach. It's really just working through whole books of the Bible. So we teach whatever the next passage is, whatever the next verse is. We teach the hard text and the easy text and and we just teach what's next. But one of the beautiful things about doing that and taking these whole books of the Bible is, is watching the way that God sovereignly leads us to particular texts at particular times. Uh, watching him unfold for us what he would have us hear. So because we work through books of the Bible and we teach the next text no matter what, to, we together, you and me, uh, are learners this week. I mean, we... This week, I just came to the passage and then submitted myself to it all week. And then we, we together, we, we get to hear from the Lord and what he would say to us and what he wants us to meditate upon this morning. And we get to see God weave together themes and truths from Genesis to Revelation in his perfect timing. I believe the text this morning uh, is an example of that. It's, it's perfect and it's providential. And so let's read and, uh, a story that's familiar to us, a story that's not that complicated, uh, but a story that's difficult to apply uh, to our own lives. And so let's, let's read together verse 35 through 41, and then I'm going to pause and pray for God's understanding. So listen as I, as I read God's word. On that day... When evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him, being Jesus, with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I believe that the whole point of this text is for us to see Jesus all the more in his grandeur and glory. And God, I pray that you would help us to do that this morning. 
Help us to behold Jesus. Help us to worship as a result of the text that we see in front of us. And Father, we pray that you would use this to encourage us, to comfort us, to uh, uh, help us to persevere until the end, Lord. We thank you for this moment of grace where your people get to gather together and sing true things to you and hear true things about you. And Father, we just thank you for this gift of grace. And we pray that you would speak to us now through these words that you would not let me speak anything of my own accord, but I would only speak what is already there in the text. Would you just expose it? Would you make it plain for us? And we pray this by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. Now, Jesus had been teaching in Capernaum, presumably all day, to large crowds. But instead of going home upon nightfall, Jesus suggested to his followers that they should cross the Sea of Galilee, eastward over to a region called Gerasenes. Now, I don't want you to read too quickly over details that you think are unimportant. Mark is making clear for us in verse 37 whose idea it was to get on a boat and go for a night cruise. Jesus is the one who leads his followers into the boat and across the sea in the middle of the night. Now, we've seen already that, that Jesus is often leading his disciples to be on the move. I mean, we saw in Mark chapter 1, verse 38, although there were still lots of people to heal, there was lots of work to do. Verse 38, he says to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. So he's, he's often saying we need to move on to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God to the next place. But on this occasion, Jesus doesn't want to go by foot. He doesn't want to go home and take a rest first. He doesn't want to go home and change clothes first. He commands they travel by boat, and he commands they travel by boat right then and right there, not waiting until morning. So being good followers of Jesus, the disciples obey. Jesus said it, so we are doing it. Verse 36 Leaving the crowd, they took with him in the boat. They took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. So they take Jesus in the boat, just as he was. In other words, not going home and changing clothes, not going to go grab anything. We're going stinky. We're just going to go right now at the end of a long day of teaching. Let's go. So they head eastward. And interestingly enough, and something I never noticed before, there's other boats with them as well. I never, I guess I just passed by that. Apparently other fishermen or perhaps just other individuals in the crowd with boats follow after Jesus as well. They, they want to see more miracles. They want to hear more teaching. So Jesus is crossing the Sea of Galilee, and they jump in their boats, and they're crossing the Sea of Galilee too. So here's Jesus' disciples and apparently a fleet of other boats following after him into open water into the middle of night. Verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. 
Now again, let's we want to listen carefully. I mean, we want to look at the language that Mark is using. Mark says, a great windstorm arose. Now the word great in the text is the Greek word megas, for which we get our word mega. It can be translated great, big, and or loud. This is a great, big, large, loud, mega storm. And the Sea of Galilee was known for these kinds of storms. I was doing some research on the Sea of Galilee. One commentary talked about how the Sea of Galilee lies nearly 700 feet below sea level, and it's surrounded by hills and mountains. Just 30 miles northeast, you've got a mountain that's actually 9,200 feet above sea level. So this interchange between cold upper air, warm up under air coming together would produce these tumultuous waters on this, on this sea so much that it would feel like you're in a hurricane in a small sea. <laughs> I mean, wind would be whipping, waves would be crashing over. Mark says that the waves are breaking into the boat. They're smacking the boat. They're so large that they're overwhelming the sides of the boat and now filling the boat. So you need to just imagine with me for a moment. I mean, fisherman's boat back then, about 26 feet long, maybe about seven feet wide, wooden structure, handmade, powered with manpower, right? About two oars on each side getting across the water. No lights, no life jackets, no radios to call for rescue, just you and your wooden boat with some close stinky friends going across the water, being tossed to and fro, up and down, side and side, back and forth with hurricane-like winds and waves. Now, amongst the group are our lifetime fishermen who would have been used to storms like this, right? But apparently, the conditions on this particular occasion are so severe that these experienced fishermen believe that they're going to die. I mean, they have, they have exhausted their knowledge and ability of controlling the boat to get it to the desired destination. And, and I'm imagining, I don't really know how the oars worked, but I imagine like hands are off this point and the oars are just like going insane and the boat is just going wherever the boat will go and the people are on the boat just holding on and they're recognizing they're going to die. And we see this especially in the intensity of their reaction in verse 38 when they ask Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? Like, this is the current trajectory. <laughs> perishing. Now before we, we press forward into the story, I just want to pause right there and recognize the theological reality that is at play in this moment, in this storm. So if you're a note taker, I, I, I just want you to write this down. This is just a truth you see. Truth number one, storms are a part of life in a fallen world. This is a uniquely severe storm, but storms are not unique. The disciples find themselves living very much in a moment that reminds them that the world around them is a fallen world. That the created order around them is hostile toward humanity. The very existence of a storm like this reminds us that the entire created order is under a curse. That happened in Genesis chapter 3. That when man sinned against God, God cursed the very ground. 
everything was affected in the created order so that now we live in a world where the forces of nature around us are hostile. Bees sting us. Right? My wife got stung by a wasp this week and had allergic reaction. We live in a world where wasps sting us. I don't think that was the case in the Garden of Eden. Snakes bite us. Weather patterns destroy us. Viruses attack us. Our bodies deteriorate over time. Death comes upon us, some at a young age, some at an older age, but death comes upon us all. Just the existence of storms reminds us of the bad news of the whole Bible. That is that Romans 1.18 says the wrath of God is, is being revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteous men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans 8.22 says we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And we feel the weight of this. Especially right now, right? I don't know about you guys, but this whole fourth wave of the pandemic thing has just left me exhausted and frustrated. Can we just be honest about that? I mean, I, I remember having a conversation with Anne Marie when we found out we were pregnant with Amelia, and then her saying, how she was nervous about having to give birth to a child in a hospital where we couldn't receive visitors or wear masks. And I laughed her off and said, there's no way we're still talking about COVID when Amelia's born. She's nine months old now. And I'm preaching to many covered faces with masks. I, I, we're in a situation where our youth class for VBS two weeks ago got shut down because of COVID. Our international mission efforts have been put on a halt because of COVID. Julio hasn't been home in a year and a half to see family because of COVID. My sister tested positive this week with COVID. COVID is a reminder to us of the fallenness of a world in which there are tiny forces of nature called viruses that attack humans. <laughs> it's a reminder of the worst news in the universe. That the world is very broken because of sin. That there is, there is evidence of the wrath of God on the original sin of man everywhere we look. And here the disciples are experiencing one aspect of a broken world. Weathered patterns that lead to their own destruction. But the gospel of Mark is about good news, right? I mean, Mark chapter 1 verse 1 introduces the book as in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is a book about the good news of a creator who stepped into creation, into the dirty, messy muck of creation. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God in human flesh who came into a broken world to pave a way into a new world. A new kingdom, a new people who en will enjoy that new world forever. Everywhere Jesus walks in the gospel of Mark, he walks like a light walking into darkness and the darkness sort of scatters at the influence of the light. As Jesus moves about in the dark world, the signs of brokenness are reversed in his presence. Diseases are cured. Disabilities are healed. Demons are cast out. They all submit to the authoritative word 
of King Jesus. And with every miracle that Jesus has has performed thus far, he's pulling back the curtain that we might get a foretaste of what the kingdom of God will be like. A place without the diseases or disabilities or demons. And all that's good, and all the disciples have seen so much of that, but the question in this story is, Jesus, where are you at right now? (laughs) Right? Where is Jesus in this story as his disciples fight for their lives? Well, Mark chapter 4, verse 38. He was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, there are a lot of things to, 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 to draw from this sentence. Firstly, just remember one aspect of Jesus coming into creation. Uh, this is nighttime travel. Jesus is teaching all day, and he's a human, and he's tired. <laughs> he, he, he felt human experience. He felt the need to sleep on the uncomfortable boat and get a cushion for his head. <laughs> he, he's, he's asleep, but the disciples are shook that Jesus would be able to stay sleeping when the boat is inevitably sinking. So they wake him up, and they wake him up with a very revealing question. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now the disciples believe that they're perishing. They believe they've exhausted every option, and they're frustrated that Jesus doesn't seem to care. He's not helping. He's not rowing. He's not trying to dip water out the boat. He is not offering any encouragement. Dude is asleep. While the whole natural world around them is crashing down on them. So when they wake up Jesus and they say, do you not care? The question's not really a question, it's an accusation, right? They're not looking for Jesus to answer and be like, no, I really care. The do you not care is a statement. I've said it before, it's the same way that Anne-Marie says, are you going to leave your socks beside the bed? She's not asking for a a logical answer. She just wants me to move the socks, right? The question is a statement. Do you not care? They're making an accusation. You don't seem to care. Now, perhaps you know the feeling. Perhaps you've made the accusation. Perhaps even right now you feel... As if you're on a boat that Jesus led you into only for him to go to sleep on you while the winds and the waves crash down on you with such force it feels like you're perishing. Perhaps you just want to scream at the Lord this morning. Wake up. Why don't you care? This is where the disciples were. And they had Jesus in the flesh in the boat with them. And I think that this is exactly the place that Jesus intended to lead them. Verse 39. Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Truth number two, storms are under Jesus' control. Jesus wakes up, 
he stands up, and I, and I just want you to imagine the disciples are like waiting, you know, what, what's he about to do? And he stands up in the midst of the tossing and turning boat, looks out into the, the storm itself, and just starts to speak with the same authority and with the same language as if he was rebuking someone. He stands up and he, he speaks in the same authority and with the same language that he used previously in Mark to cast out demonic spirits. In fact, the same Greek word used here for be still is what Jesus uses when he says be silent in Mark chapter 125 to the demon. Mark 125, but Jesus rebuked him saying be silent and come out of him. Jesus wakes up and gives authoritative command to the hostile forces of wind and rain and sea. Forces that you have absolutely no control over. None. And immediately, the, the wind ceases and there's just a calm. Now, can you imagine the suddenness of this? You know, have you ever just thought about, about what the transition was like? When those words left Jesus' mouth, and in a moment, you go from loud chaos of hard rain, whipping wind, and crashing waves to all of a sudden, sudden calm water, still boat, quiet. And the loudest thing you would hear would probably be the heavy breathing of some freaked out disciples, right? I mean, you go from lightning everything to... That's all you hear, right? Just calmness. And the response of the disciples, I think, says it all. I mean, to me, thus far in the story, this is the most undeniable, most eye-opening miracle that Jesus has done in the presence of the disciples thus far in the story of Mark. Verse 41 says this, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. I mean, curing leprosy was pretty amazing. Causing the lame man to walk was awe-inspiring. Casting out a demon was pretty wild. But commanding the forces of nature to do as you please. Everything about this moment screams... That Jesus is not just a nice person. He's not just a good teacher. He's not some kind of magician who pays off people to pretend to be healed. He literally commands the material world around him to do stuff, and it does it. Like, he, he commands water molecules and atoms and matter. He, he, he commands everything which is physical, inanimate objects and living beings, and it, and it happens. The very word of his mouth accomplishes the intent of his will. He is God of the universe. It was God who spoke the waters into existence and set them in their place in Genesis 1 verse 6. It is only God that can be said of every second of every day. This verse in Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. It was God who literally parts the Red Sea so his people could walk through on dry ground in the book of Exodus. Listen to the psalmist exalt God for only what he can do in Psalm 107, verse 23. 
says, some went down to the sea in ships doing business on great waters, and they saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. And the waves of the sea were hushed. The scene of Mark 4 is reminiscent of Jonah 1, where it's God in Jonah 1, 4, the Lord who hurls the great wind upon the sea. Jesus' authority over winds and waves here show he's no mere man. He has total control over every molecule in the cosmos as both creator and sustainer. Colossians 1.16 For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authority, all things created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Everything. Wind, rain, COVID, or cancer. Jesus has the authority to stop it at the authoritative word of his mouth. He does not lack the power, nor does he lack the wisdom. He's sovereign over the storm. So let me ask this question then. Was Jesus any less sovereign over the storm or less powerful before he stood up and uttered the words, peace be still? Was the storm a cosmic accident that Jesus found himself in along with his disciples all because he dozed off in the boat on the way across the sea. Remember, it was Jesus who suggested they go at that time in that way. I I think the story clearly indicates that Jesus led them straight into the middle of the storm that he was sovereign over. Was Jesus any less sovereign over the events that evening when he suggested, let's get on the boat and head over there? This is so important for us to realize in our Christian walk that Jesus was in no less control before the storm, during the storm, or after the miraculous stopping of the storm. He's the same Jesus from beginning and end. It's all happening for a reason. Jesus brought these followers to a point of desperation. He brings them to a point of frustration. He brings them to a point where they're asking, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And in the moment of the calmness that Jesus created, Jesus now looks to his disciples and he asks them a couple questions. Verse 40, he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, this is the moment Jesus was leading them to by putting them through the storm. And this leads us to truth number three. Following Jesus requires storm-enduring faith. This is the moment Jesus was leading to them. This is the teaching moment for them and for every Christian after them, blessed with the grace of reading these words 2,000 years later. Storms are a part of life in this fallen world, but they're also a part of following Jesus in this world. They end the storm because they obeyed Jesus. Jesus. 
Not because they disobeyed Jesus, because they were following Jesus. If they would have disobeyed Jesus, they would have been on the shore, happy enough, in the shelter. But following Jesus leads them into the tumultuous waters. Jesus does not promise his disciples clear skies and smooth waters for those who follow them on this side of eternity. In fact, Jesus promises the opposite. John chapter 16, 33, I've said to these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. Take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus has not promised that following him will be stormless. He has only promised that he'll be in the boat with you. Here Jesus is indicating to his disciples and to us that we, we, in following him, we will need faith, not just that he will stop a storm, but faith to endure a storm. We need the kind of faith which overpowers our fear of temporal circumstances or consequences with the question, have you still no faith? Jesus is calling out their behavior and their temperament as faithless. So, so what's the kind of faith Jesus is calling for here? What's, what's he calling them to believe? And then what's he calling us to? What's he calling them to trust? So let me give you, as we, as we wind down this sermon, I'm going to give you three sort of sub-points that are under this this truth number three, following Jesus, requires storm-enduring faith. This is what that is. Storm-enduring faith trusts that Jesus has power over the storm, right? So faith in Jesus must be a firm conviction that there's nothing outside of Jesus that like, puts him like, like scared, like, there's no sort of power that surprises Jesus or overcomes Jesus. There's not a circumstance in which Jesus is like, well, I would, but my hands are kind of tied right now. I'm busy with something else. I'm on vacation. He's not surprised by anything, nor is he limited by anything. One of the disciples forgot this later on uh, in, in the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus is being arrested and he's on the way to crucifixion. Now, Jesus is purposefully taking the steps to crucifixion, right? But crucifixion is like a really bad thing. So the disciples thinking, bad thing, Jesus wouldn't walk us into bad things. So he whips out his sword and he lops off the ear of the, sol- the, ear of the soldiers who's coming to, to take Jesus. And Jesus looks at that disciple, and this is what he says in Matthew chapter 26, verse 53, and you can just see Jesus, he says... Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus essentially says, do you think that we're in this situation because I don't have the power to stop it? That disciple thought Jesus needed an extra boost, a little bit more strength, a little bit more power to overturn the situation. But Jesus reminds him, I've got all the power I need at my disposal. A lack of power is not the problem here. The storms in our life are never due to a power or an authority deficiency in the Lord. So what does faith look like that endures a storm? Faith endures that I'm enduring this storm, but I believe in a God who absolutely has power to stop this storm at any moment. But that means, if we're going to trust him in that way, we also have to trust him in another way. This is point number two. Storm-enduring faith trusts that Jesus has a purpose for the storm. So if Jesus has absolutely, absolute power over everything, the problem is certain storms persist. 
Some sicknesses end in death, even of Christians. Some struggles seem to continue on for years. Then what are we to believe about the Lord if he's all-powerful and not exerting his power to provide resolve to my particular storm according to my desired timetable? Does it mean he lacks wisdom or does it mean he lacks care? If he doesn't lack power, then why doesn't he just stop this thing? And the biblical answer is that God has a purpose for every storm. And he has a purpose for every ounce of suffering endured by his people. The God of the Bible is consistently and sovereignly using the evil in the world to produce final and ultimate good for his people and glory for himself. And we do not always, and in fact, we most often do not understand. Occasionally we can see it. Occasionally, man, God just gives us a little bit of grace. We can see it. Like on the occasion of this passage, Jesus obviously led them into this storm for this teaching moment. But but that's not always going to be obvious. We will not always understand why God provides miraculous healing in one situation and does not in another situation. We will not always understand why God will offer miraculous protection in one situation and not another situation. I was talking to a brother in our church uh, just a week ago, two weeks ago. And he's overwhelmed by the fact that God had spared him miraculously, though he should have died. But his relative got sick with the same thing and died. And he says, and he was wrestling with this idea of like, why? I prayed the same prayers in the same way, and God worked in this moment and did, seems to not have worked in the other moment. And the answer to the Bible is, is that, that we are not God. We don't have infinite wisdom or power. We are creatures in a position where we're forced to have real, genuine faith. It is a mistake to define faith only as a confident belief that God is able to stop the storm. Biblical faith is both confident belief he can stop the storm and belief that God is still good if he chooses to keep the storm going. That's biblical faith. And if you only got half the equation, you will be doomed to depression. <laughs> you will be doomed to spiritual destruction. Storm-enduring faith trusts that Jesus has a purpose for the storm. And lastly, fitting in with the whole doctrine of the gospel of Mark and what Jesus is ushering into the world and what he will usher into the world, storm-enduring faith trusts that in the end, Jesus will put a stop to all the storms. Why would Jesus' disciples all die martyrs' death. It's because they believed that in the end, death would be over. That they believed that in the end, resurrection life is what they've been promised. Resurrection life is what will, what will prevail even over the most gruesome death being fed to wild animals or being crucified upside down. 
From the beginning of Jesus' ministry here in Mark, Jesus has proclaimed the coming of the kingdom of God. And we've said it before and we'll say it again because we have to understand this to interpret what's happening with all these miracles. While Jesus was on earth, he, he did not heal everyone. He did not stop every storm. He did not prevent every death. He, healed, he brought Lazarus back from the dead once, but then Lazarus went on to die later. He made clear that he were, was here first to make a way for people to join the eternal kingdom of God by taking the penalty of man's sin on himself and resurrecting from the dead. And he, as he walked in his ministry, though, as he healed, with every miracle that Jesus performed, he pointed us forward with a foretaste to what the kingdom of God will be like, what the kingdom of God we've been promised to experience will be. It will be a place where, where every healing, every miracle, every exorcism will be permanent. He pulled the, the curtain back on a kingdom where there's no more sickness, no more sin, no more temptation, no more death, no more storms, no more stinking masks, no more vaccines, no more COVID. Like, it's, like there's not, none of that. No more social distancing, only togetherness in perfect harmony with God's people and God forever and ever in the kingdom of God with the embodied Jesus of Christ with scars on the hand sitting on the throne as the rightful king over a new heaven and a new earth. It's the whole story of the Bible. It begins in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 1, and it ends in the Garden in Revelation chapter 22, when it's all over, Jesus has come, and he's cast out everything that was accursed. One day the world will be made new, and weather patterns will only be glorious things to watch and enjoy. That's the day we persevere toward. That's the lesson that even the apostle Peter learned by God's grace. You think of Peter who would have been on that boat on that day and endured the running from his life and denying Christ and the moment of crucifixion and the moment of uh, being put on trial. Peter, having been on that boat, learned this lesson time and time again. And this is how I want to end our sermon this morning, I just want to end our time together with Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter writing to God's people, enduring severe persecution under the Roman emperor Nero, under which Peter would give his life. Peter writes these words. One big sentence of praise to his God. And listen, and this is how we'll close. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I don't know about you, I've been exhausted and frustrated this week uh, just by circumstances in the world around me. And perhaps you're there, and um, I pray that you would see how God has led you to this text this morning to be encouraged to embrace a storm-enduring faith in the Lord Jesus. He is all-powerful. There is a purpose And we know that in the end, we've been promised total victory. So let's pray that God would grant us this kind of faith together. Let's pray. Lord, we know um, that storms are a part of life in this fallen world. We feel the weight of it every day. And Father, we know by testimony of your word, testimony of the spirit inside us, the people around us, and the way in which you've worked, we know that storms are under Jesus' control. And Father, we know that to endure the storms of life, it will require faith in your power, in your purposes, and in your plan for the end of time. And God, we pray for it. We pray, Lord, that we would be people of faith, unshaken. Uh, May we be a body of Christ here that is never panicky uh, because things are never out of control. We love you and we pray. Press these things into our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name.